All right, you'll need a Bible tonight. And if you'd like to follow along on the notes, there's notes up in the front and in the back. We're talking about missiology. We're really in the home stretch on our Wednesday night series. After tonight, we only have two weeks left. We're going to talk about the return of Jesus, and then we're going to talk about heaven and hell and eternal states on our last week. Uh, but tonight is missiology. Uh, the word missions comes from a Latin word, missio, which means to send or sending. And so the idea when we talk about missiology is that someone has been sent somewhere with some sort of task to accomplish. And we're going to break that down a little bit tonight. In college, I had the chance, Brooke and I had the chance, to be around a missionary couple. These were folks who had been on the field. Uh, Their last name was Burrow. And they had been serving in Tanzania. And it was time for them. In the old days, they called it furlough, but now they call it stateside assignment. So they were on stateside assignment. And they had family, if I remember right, kind of over in New Mexico, and they had some uh, sort of maybe uh, east of Texas somewhere in Amarillo. They had some connections there, and that was just kind of an in-the-middle landing spot for them. And so they ended up in Amarillo, and they ended up attending our church while they were there, and they ended up living at the same apartment complex that Brooke and I were living at at the time. And so we got to spend a little bit of time with them and talk to them, And one of the things I learned being around them, I mean, they had just come back from serving several years over in Tanzania, is that American believers who leave home, leave family, leave work, leave everything to go and to serve overseas and to share the gospel, when they come back, they think differently. They don't think like we think anymore. I don't mean that in a bad way or necessarily even always a good way. I just mean it's different. They're changed by their experience. And spending time with this family and talking to them, uh, it was obvious that they had been changed. And one of the things that I'll always remember about the Burroughs family is our church went during the summer, uh, took a children's camp. And we went to Cedar Canyon outside of Amarillo. And we had Bible study with the kids and all the stuff you do at camp. But since they were there and they were part of our church, they came. And we also had them talk to the kids about missions and what it was like to be a missionary. And they brought their kids. They were a lot younger than they are in this picture. Jesse and Lauren came. And they got to talk to them about what it was like to be a missionary kid and things like that. But I always remember our pastor standing up. And I never heard my pastor say this about anybody else in all the two decades I spent in his church and never heard him say this about anybody else but he introduced this family for the first little session where they were going to talk and he said these guys are missionaries and missionaries like the Burroughs are my heroes never heard him say that about anybody else not about his family not about you know some great theologian not about some pastor that he grew up under but missionary families these people are my heroes And he wasn't trying to put them up on some pedestal to say they're better than us, they're better than you, they're better Christians than us, they're more obedient than you. That wasn't the point of what he was trying to say. He was just trying to say there's something special about people who respond to God's call and they leave home and they leave family and they go to a new culture and a new language and a different people, especially when you're leaving some of the comforts that we enjoy here in the United States to go and to do it for the sake of the gospel. I think when people do that, and I think I saw this in the boroughs and I've seen it in other missionaries that I've been around, 
I think when somebody makes that decision, it does not make you a better Christian, but I think it gives you a little bit of clarity about life and your purpose in life and your mission in life. And I think for us, it's so easy to just get sidetracked by the routine of normalcy that when some of these folks leave all of that normal behind, they have a little bit clearer gospel focus. And just as an example of that, I want to share with you some of my favorite quotes. These are from all from missionaries or all from people who are talking about missions in the context of sending different missionaries. Some of these missionaries and folks you may have heard of and some you may not have heard of. But these are great quotes. These are the kind of words that people say when they have gospel clarity in their life. So this one comes from a guy named Hudson Taylor, and he was a missionary in China. And he said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. That's pretty good advice for life. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. This one, next one comes from William Carey. William Carey is known as the father of modern missions uh, for leaving England and going to India and the work that he did there. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. That's pretty good life uh, advice or life lesson whether you go to India or whether you live your whole life in Odessa. I like that. This is from Jim Elliott. We've talked about Jim Elliott before. He had friends that were murdered by missionaries down in South America. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And that's the kind of thing he said to people who, who said, Jim, why are you moving your wife and your kids to the jungle of South America? Why would you leave Wheaton and the comforts of the United States and you can preach in a church and you could do all these great things right here. Why do, why do you need to go down there and do that? And I think that's great wisdom. You're not a fool when you give up what you can't keep to gain that which you can't lose. David Livingston, that is the Dr. Livingston, I presume, that you've, you've always heard of. Sympathy is no substitute for action. Easy to feel sympathy for people, Right? No substitute for taking action. Carl Henry. Carl Henry was not a missionary. He's a theologian. And I just like this quote because it's about missions. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Enough said. C.S. Or, uh, excuse me, C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd played cricket. He was a, a professional cricket player. And he gave that up to be a missionary, and he said, Some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I like it. Some of these guys I couldn't find pictures for. Mike Stakura or Statura, I'm not sure, but I like this quote. The mark of a great church, it's not, as, not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity. It's good wisdom. John Falconer. I have but one candle of life to burn, and I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. One last quote. There are no closed countries if you don't expect to come back. And what he's talking about is there's a lot of countries that will not let you in as a missionary, or if you go as a missionary, it could cost you your freedom or maybe your life. And so... Sometimes missions agencies call those closed countries. Well, you can't go there. And Poston is saying, well, you can go as long as you don't expect to come back. You can go. 
So I think that's some clarity in life and the gospel and priorities. And I hope you think about those things and they challenge you. I hope if you have the opportunity to be around missionary couples that you'll spend time with them. And you'll talk to them and you'll ask them to tell you about their experience and what it was like and uh, things that they went through. And just listen to the things that they share with you and I think it will be a blessing for you. What do I need to know about missiology? I just want to throw some big ideas at you, give you some things to think about, and then tell you why it matters. Okay, what do we need to know? Number one, in the Old Covenant, Israel was supposed to function as a light that would draw the nations to Jerusalem. In the New Covenant, the church is supposed to take the gospel to the nations. Sort of a switch between Old Covenant and New Covenant, Old Testament and New Testament. And the idea in the Old is Israel is going to be this distinct, holy, one-of-a-kind people And the nations are going to see that, and they're going to want to come to Israel to learn about the God of Israel. And so we're not going to look these up, but I'll just give you some examples. You can think about Joshua 2 and Rahab. Rahab, when the spies show up, she says, We've heard about you guys, and we've heard about the Lord. And we know all that he's done in Egypt. We heard all about it. And I would just rather sign up with you guys and go with you than stay here. I want to go because of what she had heard about this people and their God. You can think about the book of Ruth and the classic line of your people will be my people, your God will be my God. She's saying, I'm going with you. I'm going to Israel. Think about First Kings. Think about the Queen of Sheba who comes to visit Solomon in all his splendor just because she had heard great things about him. She came just to inquire and listen and to be around this great wise king. You can think about Second Kings 5 which is a story of Naaman coming to Israel because he heard that maybe there was somebody who could heal him there. All of these are just sort of examples where you see Israel was supposed to be this distinct people that would draw all the nations to Jerusalem, and there, where the temple was, they would learn about the God of Israel. Now, you know that I've kind of plucked those verses out because most of the time it didn't work like that in Israel. Most of the time the nations looked at Israel and said, well, you're just like the rest of us. You worship Baal and Asherah and you go out on every high green hill and you do all these other things that we do. There's nothing to see here. You're just like us. But that wasn't how God designed it. They were supposed to draw the nations. In the new covenant, it's different. We're not just supposed to sit still and be different and wait for everyone to come to us. How many times have you heard that proposed as a missionary strategy? People say that all the time. Well, I'm just going to go to work, and I'm just going to try to be nice, and I just want people to see something different in me, and I just want them to come to me and say, what's different about you? Well, that's not the plan. Like, it sounds fine if you live in the old covenant, but you live in the new covenant. And in the new covenant, the plan is not be a nice person and wait for everyone to come to you. In the new covenant, the plan is get out there. And go, wherever you're at, anybody you cross paths with, that's somebody that you have the opportunity to share it with. So let's just read the Great Commission passages, and we're going to read them quickly. Matthew 28, there's one in each of the Gospels and one in the book of Acts. Matthew 28, this is the one we normally call the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Flip over to Mark 16. 
Is a different conversation that Jesus had with his disciples or a different part of the same conversation? And in Mark 16, verse 15 and 16, we read this. He said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Look at Luke's version, Luke chapter 24. We talked about this on a Sunday morning not too long ago. Luke 24, verse 45. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city till you are clothed with power from on high. How about the Gospel of John, chapter 20? Verse 21. This is maybe one of the first great commission passages that Jesus uttered during this time that he spent with the disciples between the resurrection and the ascension. John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. I am sending you out. That's the idea of missions, right? To be sent. I'm not asking you to just stay here and wait for them to come to you, but I'm sending you out to those who need to hear. And then you can turn the page and you can look at Acts 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. All of these passages have the idea that Jesus is sending them out on some sort of mission. Okay? What do I need to know? Number two, the exclusivity of Christ is part of the biblical doctrine of salvation. And this is super important in missions. We covered this issue when we talked about the doctrine of revelation. And I don't want to rehash it all tonight for the sake of time. But sometimes in church you'll run across someone who asks this question like, well, what about the person on the island who never hears about Jesus? What happens to that guy? Doesn't he get some kind of free pass? Or what about the lady living out in some village and all the people around her, this religion or that religion, and they don't have a missionary? Don't those people just sort of get a wink, wink, nod, nod, and they get in? And the biblical answer is, no, they don't. They will give account for their sin. And they have general revelation made available to them in their conscience and in their hearts and in creation and in this built-in sense of morality that we possess. And they know that there is a God that they ought to worship, but they suppress that knowledge and they reject it. And this, uh, this idea, when we say the exclusivity of Christ, is the idea that there is salvation only in Jesus Christ, only for those who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. Is the only way that a person can be saved. You understand, if you lose this idea of the exclusivity of Christ, missions is in the tank, right? The second you lose it, missions completely goes away. You can look at any institution, any church, any theologian, any group of people, when they lose this idea that Jesus is the only way, missions is the first thing to go. So look at a few of these passages. Uh, John 14, 6. You're familiar with most of these, I think. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I knew a Baptist pastor in Frankfurt that said, I believe John 14, 6, but I believe that only applies to Christians. 
Jesus is the only way for Christians. And you look at that guy and you say, you've lost your mind. That's ridiculous. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let's look at Acts chapter 4. This one is a little more clear to respond to our friends that try to wiggle around John 14, 6. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven, anywhere you can go, anywhere you can search, that a person can be saved by. Romans 10. Look at Romans 10. This is the verse that has propelled more people into missionary service than any other, probably. Romans 10, verse 14. Verse 13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Great news. Carl Henry. It's only good news if it gets there in time. Right? How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. All of that traces back to this idea of salvation in Romans 10, 13. 1 Timothy 2, 5, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So we're talking about the exclusivity of Christ. Let me mention a few things that we would reject Okay, while we're talking about missions. We would reject universalism, pluralism, and inclusivism. And I'll explain each of these very quickly. Universalism is not held by very many people, but there's a few folks who say all people in the end are going to go to heaven. No one is going to end up in an eternal hell. They're all going to be saved. And for most people, that's not at all intellectually satisfying or spiritually satisfying because you say, Well, there's some really rotten people that I am certain do not deserve to end up in heaven just because they died. It's all they did to deserve heaven is they died, then they get in. That just doesn't jive with most folks. It certainly doesn't jive with Scripture. Pluralism says, it's a little bit different. Pluralism says, not everybody goes, but everybody has the chance to go if they're sincere in their own faith because all roads are sort of leading up the same mountain. You're going your way, the Buddhist way. You're going up the Hindu way. You're going up the Muslim way. I'm going up the Christian way. There's all these different ways. And we're all going, and we're going to meet at the top. So not everybody goes. you got to get on the path, and you got to be sincere, and you got to be genuine in your faith. But if you're genuine and sincere and a decent, good person, then in the end, then you'll be saved. You'll go to heaven. Bible rejects that. Inclusivism. This is what you see most of the time, at least in the United States, among Christians or or professing Christians. The inclusive position says, look, Acts 4.12, I can't deny it. There's salvation in no one else. Jesus is the only name. He's the only way you can come to the Father, John 14.6. They're at least trying to be honest with those passages. But then they say, there's probably some people who have never heard about Jesus And even though they've never heard, they're really good people. They're really nice folks. And they're sincere and they're religious and they're spiritual. And they're going to be saved 
because of what Jesus did for them, they're just never going to hear about Jesus. And they're never going to have faith in Jesus. And in the end, they're going to go to heaven and it's going to be like a surprise. You got here because of what Jesus did for you. We just thought you should know now that you're here. They didn't know about it in this life. You hear that and you say, well, man, I kind of hope that's true. I kind of hope there's a little way for some of these folks. And Romans 10 says it doesn't work that way. Somebody's got to go and somebody's got to preach and they've got to hear and they've got to call on the name of Jesus because faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ, not through being a sincere person. And then you get pleasantly surprised that Jesus saved you even though you never heard the gospel. And so we would land with Carl Henry and we would say the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. If a person's going to be saved, they've got to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. So we would take our, our stake on this uh, doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ. There's a guy named John Hick, and he taught at several seminaries and Bible colleges, and so I'm not exactly sure which one this happened at, but I've heard this story multiple times, and I've read it multiple times. He took a new teaching post, and the school that he went to was well known for sending missionaries, okay? And when he took this new post in the particular program, nine of the ten students in the program where he was leading Nine of the ten students ended up going to the mission field when he got there. Nine of ten. And John Hick shows up and he starts teaching basically kind of a back and forth between inclusivism and pluralism. Not universalism, but kind of in this muddy water between pluralism and inclusivism. You know, do we really need to go because there's probably going to be a way, da-da-da-da-da. And by the time he left that school, only one out of ten kids in that program ended up going to the mission field. That just happens anytime you deny the exclusivity of Christ. If there's a way for our friends in Kenya to get to heaven without us making a sacrifice to go and to share the gospel with them, why would we make a great sacrifice to go or to send people or to do hard work over there? We wouldn't. There's a chance they can get there on their own, so we would leave it to them. So the exclusivity of Christ is part of the biblical doctrine of salvation. Number three, this one is huge. Huge, huge, huge. And it's said so well by John Piper, I just put the whole quote in here. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. If you get that flipped in your church or in your missions program, everything goes haywire. Everything goes haywire. If you don't keep the idea that God and his glory and us worshiping him in spirit and in truth is central and key and foundational, and you let missions take the place of that, eventually you're going to run off the tracks. Because eventually you're going to say, well, maybe there's a way we can get more people to respond. Maybe there's a way we could get more people to come and participate. And oftentimes, the way that you do that is by changing the message or watering down the message. And people do it with good intentions. Have you ever wondered, have you ever looked at a church and said, why would they do something like that? Why would a church have a program like that? Or why would a church sort of put themselves out there in that way? They're totally watering down the gospel. They're just totally making a mockery of what it means to follow Jesus. You've thought that. If you're honest with yourself, you know that the leaders of that church did not sit down in a closed-door meeting and say, how can we water down the gospel? 
How can we ruin the gospel? No one ever said that. But what they did is they flipped this hierarchy. And instead of keeping worship primary, they made missions primary, outreach primary, growth primary, numbers primary. And when you make missions primary, you'll do anything for the sake of more numbers and more baptisms and more people and more whatever. So you've got to keep this in balance. You've got to keep this checked. Another way of saying the same thing is missions is temporal. Worship is eternal. There will be a day when we don't send missions, missionaries anymore. Right? There will be a day when we collect the very last missionary offering. You understand? In heaven, nobody's going to hit you up for a missionary offering. As long as you're here, I'm going to hit you up. And we're going to lay the heat on thick and you got to give and you got to make a sacrifice and you got to do it. But someday we're going to be done with that. We're not going to be passing the plates for missions offerings anymore. We're not going to be asking anybody to leave their home and their family and go halfway around the world to tell people about Jesus. Missions is temporal. Worship is eternal. And you can look up the verses in Revelation. They're not having missionary commissioning services, but they are having worship services. And that's eternal. Okay? Number four. Who do we go to? We're called to go to people groups. The Greek word is panta ta ethne. And in older translations of the scripture, and in older days, this just got labeled the nations. We go to the nations. This is not exactly what the word means. It's, it's a better translation to say go to all people groups. And so just look back at Matthew 28, since it's you know the great commission, and just look closely at what Matthew says. Or Jesus says, Matthew writes it down. Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. When you and I hear that word nations, we think Canada, United States, Mexico, Panama, Brazil, Argentina, Kenya, Tanzania, England, France, nations. That's not the idea that Jesus is getting across. He's not saying, make sure you get one missionary planted in each geopolitical nation state. He's saying, go to all of the people groups, all of the peoples of the whole earth. And the best description of this maybe is found in the book of Revelation. If you look at Revelation chapter 7, you see a great description of what Jesus is getting at. Revelation 7. Part of John's vision in verse 9, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. It's the same word. From every people group. From all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We're sent to, the way a a missiologist would describe it, is all of the ethno-linguistic people groups of the world. Let me just give you a description of what that means, okay? A people group is a group of people. Tracking with me so far? People group. It's a group of people where the gospel could take root and spread and not run into barriers of geography or language or culture, okay? Okay? How big is the circle of people where if one person became a Christian, they could start sharing the gospel 
and they could share it with all these people in their people group without crossing barriers of geography or language or culture. This totally changes the way we think about missions. Look at this picture right here. Picture on the left is an outline of Nigeria. Okay? Maybe somebody says, I've always been interested in Nigeria. I want to be sent as a missionary to Nigeria. Great. That's what it looks like. We're sending you to Nigeria. When you get to Nigeria, everywhere on that picture on the right where there's a black line, it's a different people group. Every time you bump into one of those lines, you run into people who have a different culture, a different language, or a geographic barrier where you can't get to them. So if you're going to be a missionary to Nigeria, we say, well, great. You're going to reach Nigerians. Which ones? Which circle are you going to take? One of those big ones where there's not very many people and they're always spread out, or one of those little tiny ones where they're all packed in there like sardines and right on top of each other. But you sharing the gospel, if you go and you invest two, three, four years of your life learning language, you're only going to be able to share the gospel within one of those little circles. And when you go outside of that circle, you're going to talk to people or you're going to run into people who don't speak the same language or they don't have the exact same culture or there's some sort of geographic barrier that stops you from getting there. So we're talking about people groups, all of the different peoples, all of the different languages. You understand in Odessa, we got a ton of people groups, a ton. You understand there's people in Odessa that even if you wanted to, you couldn't go share the gospel with them. They're right here in our city. Geography's not stopping you, but language and culture is separating you from that person. And to share the gospel with them, somehow someone's going to have to cross that barrier. And it's the same idea in missions. If you want to check out a really cool website that talks about this, there's a website called peoplegroups.org. And you might just, this is a screenshot of their homepage. Down at the bottom, they got three boxes with numbers. They update these numbers. Let me tell you what those numbers mean. In the world, there are 11,747 people groups. Different groups of folks where the gospel could spread without hitting a barrier of language, culture, or geography. Over 11,000 groups of people. Some of those groups of people have hundreds of millions of people in them. Some of those groups of people have 20 people in them. Some little tribe down in Brazil somewhere, and that's their people group. But there's 11,000 of them. 7,039 are unreached with the gospel. Unreached, meaning the percentage of Christians in that people group is less than 2%. That's kind of an arbitrary number. I don't have a Bible verse for that. That's just sort of the standard number you talk about. 2% or less are Christian. They're called an unreached people group. Most of the people, the vast majority of that people group, does not have access to the gospel if they wanted to hear the gospel. There's no church that they can go to. Right? There's no Billy Graham rallies they can go attend. Look at that last number, 3,213 unreached and unengaged people groups in the world, meaning less than 2% Christian, and there is no missionary there telling them about Jesus. Nobody. No church is going to take short-term trips. No missionary has planted their life there. They're unreached by the gospel, and there is no one there to tell them the good news. And you look at that numbers, and you say, "Go back." I keep going back to the Carl Henry quote. He's not a missionary, but he's saying, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. 
It's not good news for those 3,213 people groups because there's no one there to tell them about Jesus. You say, man, every Christmas, why do they lay it on so hot and heavy that we need to give to missions that a church like ours, not a very big church, ought to at least, at least support one missionary family a year through the International Mission Board. We lay it on hot and heavy because there are 3,213 different groups of people on this earth who don't know Jesus and there's no one there telling them about Jesus. We've had 2,000 years to get the message to them and it's not done yet. Coke and MTV have done it in about 50 years. We haven't done it. That's a lot of people, billions of people unreached and unengaged with the gospel number five our mission involves evangelism discipleship and church planting that is the mission anything less and you haven't done the mission now in odessa texas you probably don't need to be as aggressive in planting churches because we have churches But when you go somewhere in the world where there are are no churches, that is a necessary part of the mission, is planting churches. We do evangelism, we disciple people, and then we do church planting. One of the greatest tragedies in all of the church in the United States is that we take evangelism and discipleship and we separate them as if they don't have to go together. And we have this idea of we want to reach people with the gospel, meaning we want to tell them that Jesus loves them, that he died for their sins, and we want them to pray some prayer, and then we're going to say, great, you're reached. You're saved now. That's not the mission Jesus gave in Matthew 28. There's one command, only one command in Matthew 28, and it's the command to make disciples. And if you have not made a disciple, you haven't done the mission. Getting someone to pray a prayer is not the mission. The mission is making a disciple. How do you do that? Well, you baptize them, meaning you share the gospel with them. They accept Christ. And then you teach them everything that Jesus has commanded. You show them what does it mean to follow Jesus and to be a part of his church. And when you've done that, then the mission is done with that group of people. And until it's done, the mission's ongoing. Number six, we're entirely dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit in missions. Entirely dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at, let's just look at John 16. And I think we read this verse when we talked about the Holy Spirit. But it's a good reminder. John 16. Starting kind of in the middle of verse 4. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me where are you going. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. It's the Spirit's job to bring conviction on people when we share the gospel. You share the gospel with somebody and they don't respond, that doesn't mean you failed. Your job is not to convince or to convict anybody. 
Your job is to share the gospel and allow the Spirit of God to bring conviction. So we're totally dependent on the work of the Spirit. We talked about that in our lesson on the Spirit. Number seven, the call to missions is general and unique. It's general and unique. So I want you to look at Acts chapter 8. By general, what I mean is everyone who says they follow Jesus falls under the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not only like a, an appendix or an addendum that we apply to missionaries, to those who go to Africa or those who go to South America or those who go to Asia. It's for all Christians. It's part of what being a disciple means. Disciples make disciples. That's inherent in following Jesus, that you teach others and you lead others in following Jesus. So when I say it's general, I mean every one of you who says you love Jesus is called to missions. And here's an example of that. Acts 8, okay? Verse 1. Saul approved of his execution, talking about Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Persecution on the church. Everyone is scattered except the apostles. They stay in Jerusalem. Devout men buried Stephen, and they made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. It was not the apostles who did that. They stayed in Jerusalem, and the church was scattered. And the people, the lay people, the members, went about preaching the word, and they give Philip as one example of that. So there's this general call to missions. Everyone is called to share wherever you're at, wherever you go. And there's a unique call. Acts chapter 13. Look at this quickly. What I mean when I say unique is that not everyone is called to pack their bags and leave home and go overseas. Or go to a foreign country or cross a language barrier or a cultural barrier. Acts 13. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Manaean, not called. Lucius, not called. Simeon, not called. Barnabas and Saul called to go on this unique, special mission. You say, well, does that mean those other guys just got to stay home and play board games all day long? No. It just means they weren't called to pack up and to leave and to go on this particular trip. Okay, last idea before we get to some application. Part of our mission involves meeting needs. We could spend months and months and months talking about what's more important to feed hungry bellies or to preach the gospel? And which do you do first? And which do you do more? And how do you decide? I mean, books and articles and papers have been written about this. Um, let's just say this. Part of the mission does involve meeting needs, and I've given you some examples of that. You can look those up. Paul took an entire mission trip basically to collect a relief offering for people who were starving in Jerusalem. And on the way, he preached and he taught and he made disciples and shared the gospel and started churches, strengthened churches. But the point of the trip was to collect this, this relief offering. 
Why do I need to know about this? Just a few thoughts. Missiology is applied theology. It's applied theology. What we mean is, when you do it right, all of your theological beliefs come to bear in how you do this, missions. How you reach people in your town, how you do things as a church to to outreach to your community, how you reach out to the ends of the earth and making disciples of all the nations, all the people groups. Your theology and what you believe about God and the Bible and Jesus and salvation, all of that stuff builds up and it's applied in this doctrine or in this practice of missiology. And we've already said this, but I'll mention it again. You can't get it flipped. You can't let missions control your theology because then you end up believing anything, teaching anything, saying anything, doing anything for the sake of missions and outreach and being relevant and and getting people in the doors. It's not, not the way it's supposed to be, but theology controls missiology. Number two, participating in the mission is a matter of obedience. Or, by implication, you could say disobedience if you don't participate. Nobody gets a pass. Nobody gets the sort of like the exemption, like the little sticker you hang in the window of your car that says, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't have to participate in the missions. I get to park on the front row. I don't have to give. I don't have to go. I don't have to be involved. None of those passes are being handed out. It is a matter of obedience. And Peter talks about that in 1 Peter 3. Always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that you have. You have to be ready to share the hope you have of Christ with anybody who you would come across. Number three, sacrifice and risk are right because Jesus is worth it. I've seen parents discourage their kids from going into missions because they think it's too dangerous or it's a poor career choice. And you sort of chuckle in that and laugh about it. I've seen it a lot. Like, well, you know, you need to go to school. You need to get a degree. You need to do this. And you need to get married. And then you need to have kids. And eh, you're kind of like throwing your life away if you do that. They wouldn't say that out loud. But that's essentially what they communicate to their kids. And the reality is, if we're going to reach those 3,000 people groups who have never heard about Jesus and there's no one there telling them, somebody's going to have to take a risk and someone's going to have to make a sacrifice. And I'm not just talking about the people who go, but I'm talking about the people who stay and give so that we can send people. You and I are part of a denomination that right now is reducing our missionary force. Because we don't have enough money to send all the people who want to go. We don't have enough money to send all the people we've already sent. We've been running in the red for decades because we don't have enough money. There hasn't been enough sacrifice, not in those willing to go, but in those willing to give. So we've started saying to people, you got to come home. you got to retire early. you got to find another way to support yourself. We, can't, we don't have any money for you. Somebody's got to sacrifice and somebody's got to take a risk. I didn't put this on your outline and I wish I would have. Look at Matthew 19. This is the the passage you remember where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and 
talks about it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the disciples say, who can be saved? He can't be saved. Who can be saved? And Jesus says, it's impossible with man, but all things are possible with God. And then Peter speaks up, and he's, think, he's looking at this rich young ruler and how he wouldn't give up his stuff to follow Jesus. And he's trying to put it all together. And Peter pipes up in verse 27. He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? He wouldn't do it, but we did it. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone, it's not just about those twelve, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You look at that passage and you look at what I asked you to fill in the blank, sacrifice and risk, and it's almost comical. Like No one's really asking you to make a sacrifice. No one's really asking you to take some big risk where there's not going to be a payback. Everyone who does this is going to receive a hundredfold in the next right, in the next life. Jesus says, I'm going to do right by them. I'm not asking you to give anything up that you're not going to get back. But from our end of things, in our perspective, someone will have to make a sacrifice and someone will have to take a risk. David Platt is the president of our missions agency, the International Mission Board, and he says this all the time. He says, the people that are easy to reach have been reached. The ones that you don't have to make a big sacrifice or learn a crazy language or go across the world, we've reached those people. The only ones left are the ones that are hard to reach because the government is oppressive in their country, because the religion that they practice is violent and aggressive, because it's hard physically to get where they're at, because their language is almost impossible to learn, it's hard to reach them. The easy ones have all been reached. So it's going to take sacrifice and it's going to take risk. Number four, if you don't understand missions, you will not understand prayer. Impossible. If you don't have a good grasp on missions, you can't understand prayer. Here's another quote I stole from Piper's book on missions. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It's not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. And that's what we turn it into typically. I need this, they need that, this person's sick, that person's sick, help this person, be with that person. And it's just like a begging for therapy session too often. And he's saying, that's not the point of it at all. And if you're interested in, in what he has to say, you should check that book out. We'll talk about it in a minute. Number five, Jesus has promised his presence and his authority for the task of global missions. We love the verse where Jesus says, or the part of the verse where he says, I, I will be with you always to the end of the age. But in the context, what he's talking about is, as you are making disciples, that's when I'm with you. I'm not with you when you just sit on your backside and you don't do anything to advance the gospel in your community or around the world. I'm not with you for that, just because you happen to plant your backside in a church on a pew or on a cushy pew chair. I'm with you when you're going to make disciples. Uh, Six, we're called to become all things to all people that by all means we might win some. You can read that yourself straight out of 1 Corinthians. 
all things to all people that by all means we might win some. Doesn't mean we change the message. Doesn't mean that we think a method or a means is going to be magical in saving people. But what he's saying is we cross those barriers of culture and language and geography to take the gospel to people. We don't just sit back and wait for them to come to us, but we go to them. We become like them. Last idea is this, number seven. Hell is a fearful reality. It's a fearful reality. And I didn't give you any verses there on purpose because we're going to talk about hell in a couple of weeks, and so I didn't want to give it all away. But when you think about hell, it should be part of what motivates you to be involved in missions and the the gravity of that. Let me mention a few books for those of you who like to read. Um, And tonight you got bonus books. There's so many books. I just giving you bonus books tonight as recommendations. Um, Two books that are really, really great books if you're interested in missions. One is called The Missionary Call by David Sills. And if you are honest, okay, and you don't, like, give me a churchy, trying-to-be-spiritual answer, you've sat and you've heard missionaries talk about being called to missions, and you've thought, what in the world does that mean? Is that like a phone call, writing in the sky, a whisper? How did that happen? How did you know? And in this book, Dr. Sills explains, well, this is what it means. This is what it looks like. This is how you might experience it. Um, and so I think it's super helpful. He's also written a book called Reaching and Teaching. And the whole point of this book is that for centuries we've been sending missionaries to reach the nations, but we haven't taught them. So you, we've sent people to this village, and they've shared the gospel, and they've said, great, glad you love Jesus now. Here's a Bible. You're in charge. Get a church together. We're going to the next village. And those people don't know anything about anything. And it's disastrous when we leave. And his point is, you've got to teach them. You're not done with the mission until you've taught them. And they are ready to then turn around and teach somebody else. That is the mission. If you don't do it, you haven't done the mission. Um, one book I would mention is called Jesus, the Only Way to God. It talks about exclusivism, pluralism, inclusivism, if you're interested in, in that sort of philosophical, theological discussion. If there was one book of the ones I listed on the one to six that I would recommend, it would be Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. And I make the guys in my missions class read this book. And I know I listed it down at the bottom under challenging. And a lot of you are thinking, eh, then I can't read it. I read this when I was in 11th grade for the first time in an adult youth Bible study at a church, uh, our church on Sunday night. And we read through it, and me and my dad took that class. And uh, you can get it. It's not just super easy. You're not going to blow through it in a day. But there's a lot of good stuff in here, and you should check that out. I also want to mention to you some missionary biographies. uh, And then one more really neat book. Missionary biographies are great to read. Whether you think you want to go on a mission trip or don't, or you like reading or you don't, missionary biographies are cool. And one that I would recommend is by Elizabeth Elliot. It's called Through the Gates of Splendor. I gave you a quote from her husband Jim earlier tonight. Jim was one of five men killed by the Alka India tribe, Indian tribe 
in South America. They were speared to death on a beachhead while they were making contact with this tribe for the very first time. And Elizabeth wrote this book about their experience and not only the experience of losing her husband, but of staying and sharing the gospel with the very people who murdered her husband and some of the other wives stayed as well. So that's a really cool book. A book about William Carey I listed. Um, I think you would be amazed at what William Carey accomplished in his life. And when you read it, you kind of feel like a failure. You're like, well, I have done nothing. He translated the Bible into 40 languages and had a printing press and a college and a hospital and an orphanage and a this and a this. But it's amazing to think about uh, what he did or what God did through him. So that's a great book to read. Last book I'll mention. If you like to pray for missionaries, um, I told you a couple of weeks ago about the Facebook page and the Twitter account you can follow, and the IMB will send you prayer requests. My family's been using that uh, for prayer because just every day it sends you, here's, here's someone or something you can pray about. This is another great resource. It's called Operation World, and it's not the kind of book you like, start at the beginning and read to the end. Okay, you Don't do that with this book. What you do is you say, I want to pray for Kenya. And so you turn to the K's, and you find Kenya, and it talks, tells you everything you would ever want to know about Kenya. Who lives there, the people groups that live there, what religions are there, what's the denominational breakdown of Christians there, what are exciting things happening there you can be thankful for, what are things that, that need to happen that you can pray for. It gives you all sorts of different things uh, to guide your prayers. And it's a super neat book if you're interested in, in something like that. So there's a few recommendations on books. We have two more weeks. We're going to talk about the return of Jesus next week. And Corey, you got the date figured out? Are you ready for next week? Or you need a little more time? A little more time. Okay. Well, you got a week to figure it out. Hopefully it doesn't happen before next Wednesday. So we're going to talk about that. And then the last Wednesday night, we'll talk about heaven and hell um, and why that's important.